nuclear. This field of science was responsible for the devastating conclusion to the Second World War. This alone would be enough to suggest why few other technologies conjure as much misunderstanding and fear. Today, the very same field now quietly supports our way of life by providing unique ways to interact with reality. It allows us to observe the world in impossibly fine resolution, it enables us to measure and gauge events of the distant past, offers options for diagnosis and treatment of severe ailments, and generates great power with exceptionally low carbon emissions. The greatest tool for promoting understanding is discussion, and it is well overdue in Australia. Welcome to Going Fishing, Australia's nuclear technology discussion. The current estimates suggest that Australia holds approximately 30% of the world's uranium, the largest shared held by a single nation. Yet this resource, wholly produced for export, is a tiny fraction of our total exports, even compared just with iron ore and coal. Australia is only the third largest exporter of uranium behind Canada and Kazakhstan. Today, to discuss the lucky country's wondrous yellow hoard, I am joined by Executive Director, Uranium, of the Minerals Council of Australia, Daniel Zavatiero. Thank you for being on Going Fishing. Great to be here, Logan. All right. So, first question. You've been in the mining game for a very long time. Would you care to elaborate on your career history? Yeah, yeah. Well, well thanks for uh, having us on and uh, looking forward to this chat. I think it'll be uh, good fun. Uh, so, yeah, I had a long career with BHP. Uh, starting in the early 90s and through to 2013, actually. And, but most of it was, well, almost all of it was in sales and marketing, really. So had a particularly long time in iron ore from the late 90s through to the mid-2000s, which was a fascinating time to be in the iron ore industry because it went from being an industry that was really dominated by Japan in particular to one, and the second half of that period was really saw the rise of China become a really prominent player in the iron ore space. And there's a lot of commercial uh you know, conventions around that industry were sort of undergoing a lot of change. It used to be an annual pricing system uh, went going to a very tradable commodity later on in that period, and that's continued on since then. So that was really fascinating. But then through then I had a few other changes and moves and uh, uh, looking at different commodities, and I finished up selling uranium for the last couple of years of my, my time at BHP, and I just thought it was a fascinating commodity. Um, uh, particularly coming from iron ore to uranium was quite interesting because iron ore, I mean, today Australia is doing about 2 million tonnes a year. Uh, sorry, 2 million tonnes a day of iron ore, just about 1.5 to 2 million tonnes of That's shipping huge. per day. Um, and when I was selling it uh, and involved with it, we, you know, we were hundreds of thousands of tonnes a day, you know, 80, 90 million tonnes a year what was at the time I was involved. So that's the scale of things that, uh, you know, that, that it takes in the modern world to build the world's modern cities and, and bridges and infrastructure. Um, and then I went from that, so through various other moves and then ended up in uranium. And then you start to look at uranium and you got, you're told, well, 60,000 tonnes of uranium powers about 10 or 11% of the world's electricity. And I'm sitting there going, 60,000 tonnes? That's like half of an, less than half of an iron ore ship of which we're doing you know, several, you know, 10 a day sort of things across Australia and then more out of Brazil and whatnot. So, you know, the, the energy density of uranium really captivate, captivated me uh, as I start to learn more and more about the commodity. And then, of course, the environmental benefits that come from that. You just don't need a lot of uranium to generate so much uh, so much energy. Um, and that's uh, 
So that's what really captivated me in the industry. And that's how I guess I went from being a, an iron ore and, and uranium marketing guy from BHP to then subsequently coming into the, uh, the uranium advocacy space uh, that I've been doing over the last four or five years. That's really interesting. Um, you said something earlier just then when you're talking about Japan. You said uh, we were sort of competing with Japan. Now, Japan has no natural resources. How are we competing with Japan? No, no, it wasn't, I wasn't saying we were competing with them. I was saying that we were selling iron ore to Japan, and it was um, it was the, one of the major customer bases. So it was very influential, in, and still is. It's a, it's a big consumer of Australian, uranium, uh, Australian iron ore and, and Brazilian iron ore. So it was a big basin for supply. The Japanese steel mills uh, were you know, the world's best, um, and they were providing a lot of steel both in Japan but also for export. Uh, so as as a bit, they were a big customer, and uh, and they were very well organised. You know, so they had very they they had a lot, you know for 30, 40 years have were critical in establishing the conventions for the commercial arrangements of how iron ore business was done. Um, and uh, and I guess what I was saying was that. Uh, that started to change as China, China imports of uranium, of iron ore. I keep swapping iron ore and uranium. Uh, of iron ore became more and more prominent. I remember one year. I mean, Japan was importing about 110 million tons of iron ore a year, and one year the Chinese increase was that size. And I remember wow. thinking at the time, going, "My goodness, you know, the, the iron ore imports just grew by the entire size of the Japanese market uh, in this particular year." So that's the sort of thing that was happening early on in the 2000s. Uh, and really, no one had sort of seen full. So everyone saw Chinese growth coming, but the scale of it, I think, was pretty much underestimated by everyone. And uh, it was a fascinating period. Um, I've never put pen to paper on iron ore, on, on the iron ore industry and the developments of that time, but it was just a really interesting time to be in it. And so, yeah, not a competitor, yeah. uh, but but yeah. but a, 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 an important customer, and still to this day, a really important customer for Australian commodities in general. That's significant as well, because as I understand it. Iron ore is the single largest export of Australia. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, iron ore and coal are very close, and uh, coal in recent years has really uh, grown substantially as well. And remember, of course, with coal, there's really two parts to it. There's the metallurgical coal and thermal coal, and most Australia, most in international coal production or most coal production in the world is thermal coal for energy generation. Uh, Australia is a massive producer of metallurgical coal. Uh, particularly out of Queensland, uh, more than 50% of Queensland's exports are metallurgical coal. Um, and so when you look at our coal export profile compared to other big exporting countries, most of other big exporting countries, it's all thermal coal, energy generation coal. But for us, a big component, I'm not sure if it's more than 50%, is uh, is, is metallurgical coal. Um, yeah, so it's it's a... And if metallurgical coal commands a, a premium over thermal coal. So it's very it's a very important industry for Australia um, and really important for our trade. I mean, we, we often forget that, you know, com- countries don't buy our commodities because they want to be nice to us. They're buying our commodities because there's a great demand for it. Our commodities generally are, 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 are quality-wise are really good. You know, Australia's coal is some of the best in the world. Certainly metallurgy coal is fantastic uh, and premium, premium coal in the world. And our energy coal is, is very high quality as well. Um, our iron ore is geographically um, very closely located to the major growth centres you know, from Pilbara into Asia. Um, so Australia's got lots of good good advantages in the in, in the mining space in general. Um, and yeah, and you know, in the old days, the tyranny of distance. You know, the great the great demand centres were you know America or Europe. 
But in the last 20, 30, 40 years, the, the great demand centres have been the rise of Asia um, and the industrialization and urbanization that's gone in Asia. So the tyranny of distance for this, for our country, has really flipped around in more recent times as, as, uh, as Asia's grown and blossomed and we've been able to supply critical raw materials to enable that growth, which is something I think a lot of Australians don't uh, recognise and probably aren't as proud of about as much as they should be, I think. Excellent. And just briefly, so the the main difference between your thermal and your metallurgical coal is obviously your, your metallurgical coal is essentially premium coal that you need to convert your iron to steel. Exactly. Yep. So there's a nice synergy there that... Um, yeah, and, the, and our metallurgical coal is predominantly in Queensland and our iron ore assets are in Australia, predominantly in the West. There used to be talk about maybe we could build a rail line from one to the other and have steel mills on either side, right? But in the end, I think it's just evolved that commercially it was um, you know, more beneficial to see Australian resources um, developed and, and exported to countries that, uh, that sort of added that kind of value. What we've actually seen is in 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 a, in a different kind of way, valuating going on in what's called the MET sector, the mining uh, equipment technology services sector. So you've seen a lot of that growth. And so when sometimes people talk about mining in Australia, they think of just the, you know the the sort of minerals that are extracted. But we've actually developed well, the not the mining industry per se necessarily, but as a customer and an industry has developed around that, providing technology and services and equipment that's world's best. And I think some analysis we did a couple of years ago um, that was done a couple of years ago said that something like 10% of the country is sort of is employed in the mining and met sector combined, which is a huge amount and uh, and really reflects the value, I guess, the value add that, that has spun out of uh, having a strong mining sector that we've had. So, But yes, metallurgical coal uh, goes together with iron ore to make steel. It's the predominant form for making iron and steel in the world today. Uh, you can make steel with the other way of making steel is through electric arc furnaces, uh, where the key where you are using scrap steel, for example, um, also some HBI hot briquetted iron. Uh, but the key raw material there is electricity. So um, you well the key sorry the key power source there is is electricity. Whereas in the in the blast furnace route, which is Japan and South Korea and uh, and where all our iron when you when you're using iron ore, you're going the blast furnace route and that. And there, there, the power source is predominantly coking coal, which which is uh, manufactured from metallurgical coal. So, yeah, it's it gets pretty technical and pretty geeky pretty quick, Logan, as you, as you oh, can tell. Absolutely not a problem. It's a uh, yeah, it's good. Okay, better get on to better get away from coal. Yeah. As should the nation? Yeah. So, well, yeah, go on. <laughs> What role does the Minerals Council of Australia, or MCA, play in terms of uranium and more for resources more broadly? Yeah, well, there's a couple of questions there. I guess the MCA is the peak body for the mining industry, for the resources sector in Australia. We cover about 85% of uh, Australia's mining production. Um, so the MCA has been around for quite a few decades now and um, evolving over that time, of course. Um, the relationship with uranium is a little bit more recent. MCA was always, uh, you know, supportive of uranium, but in recent times there was a merger in late 2013 of the Australian Uranium Association, which went from 2006 to 2013. Uh, it merged into the MCA at the end of 2013, and that's when I became involved with um, uh, with the MCA uh, and and the advocacy for uranium. So just to go back on the AUA itself, um, so it was formed, the uranium industry around 2005 and six. Uh, thought 
we should have an association, we should have a body where we get together and, and look at things like industry standards and advocacy and whatnot. And, uh, and so they formed their own group, the AUA. Uh, and that went through to 2013. And after that, uh, the, the CEO was moving on to other things. And, uh, and rather than uh, continue on that way, the AUA, sort of, the AUA members agreed that it would be good to merge into the larger organization, which was the MCA. And that's when I came in. So I guess that's the history in a nutshell and how I came to be involved with it. Um, and um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting four and a half or four and a half years or so. Um, uh, as I said, the MCA is, it, it does cover all of Australia's commodities effectively. Um, you know, the big ones, of course, are iron ore and coal, both met and, and thermal coal, uh, but also copper. Uh, uranium's not a big commodity in terms of volume and value. I, I often describe it as a high-value, low-volume commodity. Um, so it's a heavy metal. You know, all of Australia's uranium exports, about 400 containers a year. We ship out in, in containers, not in large bulk ports like iron ore and coal do. Um, Australia's exports are about half a million, uh, sorry, half a billion to a billion dollars a year. Um, and it doesn't seem like a lot when you look at uh, coal and iron ore around $50 billion types, type commodities uh, per annum. But, you know, it's, these are criti- it's a critical uh, raw material for nuclear power generation. Um, and, uh, you know, and, it, and, and our 7,000 tonnes or so a year does oscillate a little bit up and down. But around 7,000 tonnes of Australian rain would, would generate about the same amount of power that Australia consumes in terms of electricity. It's at 250 terawatt hours. So... Uh, just in 7,000 tonnes of uranium. So you compare that to, you know, the, the amount of coal or gas you need when you're generating large amounts of power. Um, it's it's quite an extraordinary commodity in that sense. But, uh, you know, the MCA in terms of uh, all these other commodities, we, we're very neutral in the way we approach these things. We're not uh, anti any commodity. We're very much a, we're, we're very much a market-based organisation. We believe that, uh, you know, that mark, market dynamics... Uh, can can pull through the kind of commodities that uh, that are most efficient for for, for use in various uh, various applications. So uh, uh, right now, you know, coal has been a very very strong commodity this century in particular. You know, I talked about that growth in Asia. I think a lot of that growth has been fueled by um, by coal uh, in in China, for example. Um, and I think some of that's balancing out. I think coal is clearly going to have another a, a, a strong role to play in the years years ahead. Uh, but we see countries like China and India that are looking at all all the sort of suite of energy resources uh, to develop. The, you know, these countries are massive populations. They're still urbanising and developing their infrastructure. I think they see that uh, it's important to have uh, a diversity in these uh, in the in the technology space around what what's going to work in the future. And so that's why those those countries are very interested in all these technologies, and including new coal technologies. To be fair, I mean, a coal plant built today would be very is very different to one built forty years ago in terms of the efficient use of coal, the the, the emissions profile you're going to get from that. Um, so, and a lot of these countries have you know, these developing countries have the advantage that they're building new plants uh, rather than uh, living off older ones in the sense of uh, some of the the efficiency numbers you get from that. So. Um, yeah, but from from our perspective, um, we're technology neutral in that sense, um, and we support Australia having uh, uh, policies that uh, enable the safe and sustainable development of of resources for well, particularly for export markets that are growing rapidly, and most of them in our region at the moment. So 
I think, am I covering everything you want? No, this is really good. I mean, it's absolutely <laughs> fair to say that, yes, okay, Australia wants to decarbonise our fuel so we won't break our addiction to coal, as does many other places in the world. But, yeah, it's absolutely right. You can't do that overnight. You can't mm. do that in two years. You can't do that in five years. It is. It will probably take at least 20 years or 30 or 50. Mm. So, yeah, those during that time, it's absolutely a, uh, it makes absolutely perfect sense to a, uh, to support the, the commodity. And I think, um, well, I think the other thing is there's a lot of technology development going on in the coal space as well around CCS, for example, carbon capture and storage. Um, and there's good examples of that happening. It's, it's a challenge. But, you know, that's the interesting thing about this space. I mean, it's easy to pick holes in an advocate's position on something, right? Um, but the reality is there's no, almost no free lunch. Everything has challenges. You know, we know the challenges with coal around CCS. We know the challenges with nuclear and uranium, you know, the, there's some the recent um, projects that have gone up around the world. A lot of them have gone over budget. Um, you know, they're complex projects. So you've got a lot of good research around. Well, how can we drip? How can we drop costs out of the the, the capital uh, program for for nuclear plants? You know, and so some people say, well, you just got to build more of them so you get scale economies over time. Others are look at you know pretty hopeful around small modular reactors. The idea of building them in factories and then installing them on a site. That could be a, a good cost. There could be some really good cost benefits there as well. So there are challenges in the nuclear space. There's no doubt about it. There's some good success stories. I think the UAE is a really good success story where, you know, effectively that country's gone from, you know, go to woe in, say, 15 years. They'll have four big nuclear power plants built for them and pretty much, I believe, on budget. There's been a little bit of delay in more recent times. But a lot of that's around training rather than the actual construction program. Um so that project's on balance looking very successful in terms of cost and economics uh, and construction times. Um, uh, and then on the other side, when you look at renewable energy resources, we've seen that those also come with a lot of challenges, particularly around intermittency. So even though we've seen some good cost, say, cost reductions around the world in terms of solar panels and, and, and uh, wind resources you know, and the capital involved with rolling out these, these things, um, yeah, the yeah, there are challenges with integrating them into a system, into these uh, these grid systems that we have in well, predominantly in the Western world today. So there's no free lunch. Everything's got challenges, and I think it's clear that in the years ahead, um, you know, there's there's a place for all these technologies. And one of the things I keep reminding people when I talk to them is, you know, there's seven billion of us on the planet. There's still a billion people with virtually no access to electricity, and we've project most people are projecting another two billion people coming onto the planet within. Yeah, by 2050. So the demand for energy is going to be enormous. Um, it's already enormous. Um, and when we look at electricity versus energy, you see a lot of energy now is oil. So a lot of people say, well, not only is there a great demand for electricity, but we need to electrify more industries. So for example, when you talk about electric vehicles, you're talking about electrifying the transportation sector and moving it off petroleum products, for example, not onto electricity. So you've got potential new sources of demand coming in, in addition to the fact that we have a lot, lot of people with no electricity. So that I think even with the, the sort of efficiencies that people talk about, you, 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 you can't underestimate the amount of demand that's going to come into the world system on uh, for electricity. And, and frankly, I think that's a good thing in the sense that that means more people living better lives around the world, more people with clean water, with, uh, with, with power that they can use and they can, you know, 
uh, better health outcomes. These are all the benefits that we get from electrifying our, our lives. Um, and the fact that more people can have access to that uh, is, is not necessarily a bad thing. We often hear about you know, the drain on resources. Um, I think there are, we'll, we'll find those resources and it's getting better at extracting them safely and in an environmentally sustainable way. Um, so I'm pretty optimistic about a lot of this stuff in terms of um, you know, the outlook, mainly because if you look at the last 20 years, it's been an extraordinary period. You know, I, I talked about that Asian growth, you know, hundreds, literally hundreds of millions of people pretty much on our doorstep leaving much better lives than their parents were or their grandparents were who were living in very, very poor countries. There's still a lot of development to go in those countries, don't get me wrong, but hundreds of millions of people have been given access to electricity in the last two decades, been moving into urban areas, been getting better access to health and education. There's not a lot of talk about that in, in, in the world today. And, and Australia's benefited. Part of the reason we've had such a good period of economic growth is we opened up our economy, we made it a more efficient, competitive uh, we gave it a more efficient and competitive platform and we've benefited from this demand that came into, into our natural resources sector. Uranium. Yeah. Where does it come from? Everywhere. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can find it in a lot of places. Uh, but, you know, the world's uranium industry is largely, I mean, the largest producers, Kazakhstan and Canada, as you mentioned, and Australia's third. We've got the largest resource base, uh, about a third of the world's known resources, um, but, you know, look, you know, the thing about resources is, um, you know, you find the more you look for, the more you find them, right? So, uh, you know, we the world thought it was going to run out of a lot of resources in the 1970s. We've actually got more resources than we thought we had then, and we've used more than we had then. Um, so, you know, exploration generates more and more uh, deposits and, more, and finds more and more, and technology development finds new ways of making previously uneconomic uh, resources and deposits economic in terms of how to use them if they're problematic with uh, impurities or various other things commingled in them uh, and, and also in terms of extracting them so um, um, but for us uh, rich in uranium resources and highly and still highly prospective I mean we've got a lot of parts of the country where we don't know what's underneath and people talk about Olympic Dam which is a huge deposit in South Australia and a lot of people think well what it's it's pretty odd that it would just be one of those types of deposits. So there's a, there's a, there's a view that um, there could be several others like that out and around, uh, not just South Australia, but in Australia generally. So uh, uranium is, yeah, we've got a lot of it. Um, there's, there's a few other countries with quite a bit of it as well. Um, but the other big one that people talk, people are realising more is actually there's a lot of it in the ocean. Yeah. In fact, it's arguably the largest resource. There's about 4 billion tonnes of uranium in Earth's oceans at something like 0 0.003 parts per million. Uh, and plenty of people, people have, over the years, when they were concerned about long-term uranium supply, have investigated the idea of extracting some of that. And there's been some interesting progress around that, although it is expensive. So until until the price or the cost of mining of uranium becomes pro prohibitive, it would probably be better to mine than to, uh, to try and extract it from the oceans. But interestingly, from the Australian, from the oceans, if you started to take uranium out of the oceans, I mean, you would have like millions of years of supply probably because it it's in it's in, in a, a static equilibrium. So the more you take out, the more it would leach out or bring out from the Earth itself. So Crazy. there are some people arguing that when you look at it that way, uranium is actually effectively a renewable resource until the entire planet <laughs> leached all of its uranium out, which would be, as I said, millions of years. So 
it's a fascinating commodity in that sense too. But it also helps to, I like to talk about that because it helps demystify it a little bit. People think, well, yeah, uranium's a scary thing. Well, it's actually at the beach. You know, it's yeah. in the water, it's in the seawater. <laughs> <laughs> You're swimming in it. <laughs> You're swimming in it. That's right. So, uh, yeah, so it is, uh, but it's a good opportunity. It's still a good opportunity for Australia because, as I said, we've got those good resources. We've we've got several projects. You know, we've we've had several decades now producing uranium, um, uh, supplying it to the world uh, safely and sustainably. We've got really good credibility around non-proliferation, highly respected uh, in in that space uh, around the world as being a, a responsible uh, participant in the nuclear fuel cycle. Uh, we call up, we co- collaborate and cooperate with other jurisdictions you know, in Europe and North America around making sure that uranium doesn't go to where it shouldn't go, um, and uh, and yeah, so so that's a good that 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 part of it is, and I think that part's been particularly important in recent decades in helping ca- people feel more comfortable that this is a commodity that we can produce safely and we can and doesn't end up in weapons uh, and whatnot. It, it goes to. I mean, every country we sell uranium to, we have a treaty with specifically for. This so is we, in uh, in excess or in addition to the non-proliferation the, treaty. That's right. In addition to that, that's right. So it's not sufficient to just have that. We have to have a bilateral agreement with with that country that uh, that gives us, you know, that provides additional obligations. Um, uh, so that's you know that's pretty unique. Uh, if if you're buying uranium from Australia, you are committed to using it only for peaceful purposes. Um, uh, and uh, and that's been very successful. So uh, um, yeah, look, it's a, it's a good space to be in. I think there's great opportunities. It, it'll never be the size of iron ore and coal. I mean, those are big mega industries. But it'll, it, it can certainly be a, a, a commodity and an industry that can grow from from a strong base that we're on now. Um, it, we're, we're a supply source that a lot of countries want to have relationships with uh, and want to procure from. So it's just a matter of making sure we have the right regulatory. Uh, an efficient regulatory system in place and and bring those uh, projects through as the market calls for them. Yeah. One thing that I, I, I probably have to bring this up because I know someone will pick me up if I don't. We have a very special relationship with India in terms of our iron ore exports. Would you like to comment on that? Uh, iron ore? Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're doing you got it. me. You got me. <laughs> Uh, no, in uranium. terms of uranium, well, you, well, India is is, an, is a different country because it's a non. It didn't sign the NPT, so we have an exception for India in terms of Australian policy, the federal government policy, uh, where we have allowed India to 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 go ahead and uh, we've pursued a bilateral agreement. So we still have a bilateral agreement with India that kind of mirrors the arrangement we have with other countries. So, but they haven't signed the NPT for historical reasons. Um, you know, for the, for those who aren't really, uh, you know, au fait with what the NPT was, it's the Non-Proliferation Treaty came in, I think, in the late 60s or early 70s. Um, and it basically was an international treaty that allowed all countries to have access and collaborate and cooperate around nu- the peaceful use of nuclear technology. Uh, but only five countries, which were the five countries that at the time had nuclear weapons, were allowed to keep them. No other countries were to have them. So... Everyone could, if you signed the NPT uh, and you were a non-weapons country, you were basically signing a right, away your right to produce, to create nuclear weapons. Um, and most countries did that. And some, uh, you know, some would some argue that the NPT was probably the, the greatest success story that the UN has uh, to, to, to promote. 
because actually it did lead to you know, I think I think Kennedy John JFK thought in the late in the early 60s he said by the end of this decade we could have 20 30 countries with nuclear weapons but you know the NPT was one of the things that really did uh, was quite successful in in restricting the number of countries that had nuclear weapons and so we had those five there are a few extra companies that came in addition to that India's one of them India and Pakistan I remember in you know and partly because they they missed that window effectively, or particularly India just missed that window. And I guess, um, you know, they, for many years they were on the outer as a as a consequence of that, and they weren't part of the uh, the the civil nuclear uh, global industry. Uh, but in more recent terms, they effectively they created their um, their defence uh, industry around, you know, they created their nuclear defence industry, uh, and and. You know, after three or three decades or so, I think uh, some of the key parties decided it was time that uh, you know we're not going to restrict them now. That, that what's done is done. It's time to now perhaps bring them into the into the circle and and try and manage that as best we can. So um, I think that's the some of the that's a that's kind of a bush history of some of this. Um, but yeah, that's where India is a little bit unique uh, in the in the sphere of things. But uh, and uh, yeah, so Australia has a bilateral, but uh, at this stage uh, we haven't had shipments commence. Uh, but that could happen in the years to come. Uh, and uh, it's got a you know it's got a growing nuclear industry, uh, civilian nuclear power industry, uh, the, with several reactors under construction. And I think over time it'll be a good market for us as well. So you said um, so we've got the agreement with them. I thought we were exporting uranium. Have we actually not done that? Yet? Not that yet. No, only oh. uh, I think only sort of test sample type thing, type oh, okay. uh, type arrangements. So nothing, no real shipments per se. It's look the whole international politics around a uh, around uranium export and the and the politics around the NPT is probably uh, a, 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 an episode in itself. It but, is. Um, thanks very much for, <laughs> for giving us a crash course. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's good. Marketing a commodity as tightly controlled as uranium must differ from marketing other energy-dense fuels, such as, for instance, Red Bull. <laughs> yes, it is different to marketing Red Bull. It is. It is. Or coal, if we it, want to be serious. Well, coal is a very energy-dense fuel, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's it's there's no doubt about it. Um, uh, but uranium is off the charts, even compared to coal and and all the fossil fuel, you know, oil, gas. Uh, yeah, uranium's off the charts, and it's a different technology. It's fission. It's not combustion, right? So, um, uh, that that's pretty critical. But yeah, with respect to Red Bull, yes, this isn't. It's not retail. It's not. Uh, yeah, but it's uh, it's marketing business to business. So yeah, I mean, you know, compared to say iron ore, for example, not too dissimilar. Um, I used to sell iron ore, and my customers were Japanese steel mills, or European steel mills, or Chinese steel mills. Uh, when I sold uranium, my customers were nuclear utilities yeah so you know energy companies that would buy and a lot of those energy companies would have not just nuclear um plants they would have coal plants and gas plants and and and, and renewable plants as well so um when you tell when you talk to them and say why don't you go out there and promote nuclear more that's well that's like promoting one of my children over over yeah to the to, <laughs> over the other children which is uh which was an interesting perspective but but yeah, marketing uranium is is business to business. Um, the logistics is different. It's not a bulk commodity like coal and iron ore and even copper concentrates, for example, which is shipped in bulk. Um, this is containerized, packaged, um, you know, um, uh, and whatnot. And with respect to the, it's interesting. One thing I did, 
um, I, I did find interesting that yes, new, new uranium is has more government oversight in terms of the non-proliferation, the safeguards arrangements. But when you're selling uranium, you actually don't feel that so much. It's a, you know, there's about 400 and 400 plus reactors in the world. Everyone knows where they are. Everyone knows who owns them. So you'd go to conferences and you talk. You know who you're talking to. You know the potential buyers. So, um, you know, the government the government relationships in the background that monitored, um, you know, from a safeguards perspective, what was going where, you know, really didn't have that much of a, a an impact on your day to day negotiation of contracts and commercial arrangements for the for the sale and delivery of uranium. Um, which was I, I even I was a little bit surprised by that actually. Um, the one thing you do need to from an Australian perspective is you might talk to the government particularly as new countries come into the global the global world so like UAE for example is a is now about to commission its first few reactors so that's sort of thing that 10 15 years ago you know Australian producers would speak to the government and say are you talking to the UAE that could be a potential market so they'll go and talk to the UAE and and create that sort of the the framework and the, and the foundations for an eventual bilateral agreement. Um, most of the countries in the, who are, have civilian nuclear power plants have bilateral agreements with Australian supply. So it, there's not too there's no if that was if that was different if we only had agreements with a few countries then that would be I think that would have a high impact on on the way the the market worked. Um, but because most people are in the tent, the obligations are clear. Um, you know, it works pretty uh, pretty well from a, from 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 the, uh, the perspective of developing those commercial relationships and supplying against them. So yeah, it's good. In Australia, mining is a contentious issue at the best of times. Could you care to elaborate on the history of uranium mining? Well, yeah, uranium. Uh, I I talk about often. We often talk about modern uranium mining starting from about the nineteen eighties, but in Australia, I think uh, it goes back to nineteen oh six in terms of. Uh, some uranium extracted at Radium Hill in South Australia um, uh, for for the produ- uh, for production of r- radium, uh, but then after World War Two there was uh, there was a lot there was uranium extracted for UK weapons programs, for example, uh, and then in the fifties and sixties it was quite there was a lot of exploration that went, went that was going on. Uh, the seventies was an, a, a particularly important period because you had the oil shocks, so energy costs around the world dramatically rose, um, and people be, start to become concerned around energy and energy security. Um, uh, around that time, Australia really started to think about. It. And interestingly, a lot of people probably don't realise that um, you know but federal governments in Australia were quite pro uranium at the time. Whitlam government was. Pro-uranium and his resources minister Rex Connor wanted to look at uranium development and enrichment even in Australia, um, but then probably around the late say around the late seventies, a lot of political uh, upheaval at the, in the mid seventies in Australia. Uh, in the late seventies, there was a famous inquiry, the Fox Inquiry, and out of that, uh, in the from around the 80, early eighties on, um, Australia's basically uranium export policy sort of was developed out of that and has been largely. Um, in place since that time has, has evolved slightly around that time. But from around the 1980s onwards, you know, the idea of Australia developing uranium and supplying it to the world markets on the basis of bilateral agreements in place, uh, the signing of the NPT, uh, all those sorts of things were basically in place. There's been a little bit of... Um, there were some times there when during the Labor government of the 80s and, and 90s, the three mines policy was in place, which kind of restricted... Uh, the, the growth of the uranium industry uh, and its potential. 
but then post that period, uh, once they happened from the Howard government onwards in '96, uh, that sort of reopened uh, federally, and we've had pretty good federal consensus on uranium development. And even as as you, we we touched on before, um, you know, Australia's opening up of re- relationships with India around uranium was started under the Labor government. Great. So, yeah, traditionally, they've always been against uranium and correct. The so, well, that's right. The three mines policy of the eighties and nineties for Labor turned into actually now we're even going to consider supplying uh, uranium to India, provided we can get the right safeguards and, and arrangements in place to feel comfortable that uh, it can be done safely and sustainably, etc. So, federally, I think there's a lot of uh, there's 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 some consensus that uranium is an important uh, commodity, and I think that's around. Trade. It's around the fact that our trading partners, the the people that um, our federal politicians deal with uh, on a daily basis, see that it's important. And they see that Australian resources, not just iron ore and coal, but uranium is important. So um, I think that federally that message has really gotten through. Uh, Around the states, it's a bit more of a mixed uh, bag. Um, Obviously, in South Australia, long time, uh, we've had Olympic Dam and... uh, Heathgate Resources and uh, Honeymoon was another in-situ recovery operation that's now in care and maintenance that could be coming back on in the years to come. Um, so in South Australia, there's pretty good state consensus from uh, bipartisan consensus around uranium being an important commodity, uh, and also in the NT, uh, similar consensus. But in the other states, we've been off and on. So uh, a, a, a coalition or a Liberal government in WA removed the ban on, nuclear, on uranium mining, and the Labor government's put it back in. And similarly in Queensland, the, the Newman government took the ban off uranium exploration and mining, and the, the new government came in and, and put it back in. So a little bit stop-start in those jurisdictions. Uh, we, our industry continues to talk to those uh, those those parties. Uh, we continue to prosecute our case, that sort of case that you, you and I have been talking about in the last 40 minutes or so. Um, we think it's it, it's it's a valuable commodity. It can be it's, it's good for Australia to continue to develop. There's good jobs, uh, most of them in regional economies that can use that development. And in fact, we see good support for uranium mining in those regions where where the jobs are and where the developments can take place. Um, uh, but uh, so we continue to prosecute that case. We know our trading partners are interested in Australia as a as a source of of, of uranium and other commodities. Um, uh, and so uh, I think in the long run, we're hopeful that it'll continue to normalise. I mean, the long the long arc of history in this space is one of normalisation, right? We've seen, as, as we just talked about, we saw Labor federally move to a position of, of, uh, of, of normality on how this commodity it can, can be traded with our trading partners. Uh, and we've seen that, uh, we've seen Lucas Heights become more... Uh, uh, more accepted in the outer suburbs of Sydney. We've seen nuclear medicine become more understood and how important it is in our health system today. So I think the long arc is one of continuing understanding, continuing norm- normalisation of, uh, of of anything in the uranium and nuclear spaces in this country. So it's a slow arc, but it's it's still it's still I think evolving that that way positively. Olympic Dam is a massive mine in South Australia. Yep. Can you elaborate on the multiple products that it produces? Mm. Well, it's essentially a copper mine. Um, and when I was selling uranium, I didn't like calling it a byproduct. I called it a co-product. 
because I was selling uranium. <laughs> but that's um, marketing speech. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's uh, they're, they're, it's not unusual to have uh, mines that produce multiple. Pro- we call, we we would call it a polymetallic ore body, um, and its key commodities are uh, key products are copper, uh, gold, uranium, and silver. Silver less so, um, but yeah, there's even rare earths and whatnot. But the issue is, what can you commercially or economically extract? Um, uh, because and, and uh, at the moment that's the way, and I think for the foreseeable future that's the way it's set up. But to produce those four key commodities, um, particularly the first three: copper, uranium, and gold. Um, but yeah, it's a it's 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 a fantastic ore body. It's, it'll have a hundred plus year life. So there's you know not that many ore bodies around the world that you sort of talk about that kind of life. Um, it employs several thousand people in South Australia. It's a really important. Um, you know, regional uh, source of economic activity and development. Um, and I think the fact that it's polymetallic also gives it a, a, an extra a capa- capability to sort of ride the cycle. I mean, a lot of mines producing one commodity, commodities are often cyclical. So, you know, if when prices are down, it can be economically challenging for them. Um, Olympic Dam, with its multi-commodity uh, profile, has an ability to have, uh, to, to sort of ride that a little bit more than some other products, uh, some other raw bodies. So, it's a fascinating ore body, and I think it's going to have a, it's going to continue on for a long, long time in in Australia. It's a staggeringly large operation. It is, it is. And when I was selling uranium from Olympic Dam, my cousin used to call me Olympic Dan, which is pretty embarrassing. But um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. So in 2016, the the Nuclear Fuel Cycle Royal Commission didn't find an economic case for increased uranium mining or engaging uh, other f- in other fuel cycle activities in South Australia, uh, apart from the possibility of a spent fuel repository. Uh, what are your thoughts today on, on these findings? Well, we touched on that, and the findings, I think, are a bit more complex than what you just uh, summarised there. So um, it did look at the four, four sort of pieces, uh, four components of the fuel cycle. So it looked at mining and, and exploration, all the things around mining, it looked at processing, which is conversion, enrichment, the things we talked about before, fuel fabrication. It looked at power generation, and it looked at waste. And it sort of tried to see what are the opportunities and, and, and risks and, and, and possibilities in, the, in those spaces. And, I, and in the end, the outcome was, it sort of summarized, if I summarize on the four, it basically came out and said, look, in the uranium mining space, there is more opportunity. And I think, and they basically said, there'll be growth. Um, South Australia is well positioned for that. There could be, there should be some streamlining of environmental approvals and whatnot. With you know that that the government should pursue. Uh, so it had a, a number of recommendations around streamlining that. But it also made the point that yes, that'll be that'll be good, it'll be important, but it's not really a game changer per se. Um, uh, it'll be particularly important for remote areas where there's good, um, good where most of the jobs are create in mining are created. But in terms of the state, and remember this was a royal commission, so they were looking at is there big game changing possibilities uh, for the state they were looking uh, that they saw they didn't see that so much we would argue that there is potentially um, uh, still game-changing opportunities even in the uranium mining space alone um, when you start to look at some of those climate constrained you know energy models going forward you know you look at the IEA uh, the IPCC uh, most of those guys are saying if we really want to deal with climate change the nuclear is going to have to play a much more important role along with carbon capture and storage and renewables and whatnot. 
And when you start to look at some of those projections, you get a lot of uranium called for. Uh, and if South Australia attracts a lot of that uh, investment demand, you could get some pretty substantial uh, growth in the next 20, 30 years. So, uh, but that was the that was the uranium mining space. Um, in the in the in the processing space, they didn't find a lot of opportunity in the media, in the in the next decade or so. Uh, conversion enrichment is sort of well supplied. Um, in fact, there's possible oversupply in those spaces, so they didn't sort of see too much opportunity. Although they did say we, we've kind of got bans on these things, we shouldn't have bans on them per se. You know, that, so they I think they made recommendations around normalising the the legislation around 148. that. One forty eight. Well, that was nuclear power, which is the next one. So the nuclear power one is interesting because a lot of people say so the headline is, oh, nuclear power not viable. But that's not true. Uh, what, in fact, you preempted me on this. So I got, I got this, the line here. This is in the Royal Commission report. Okay. The commission did not find that nuclear power is too expensive to be viable or that it is yesterday's technology. Rather, it found that a nuclear power plant of currently available size at current costs of construction would not be viable in the South Australian market under current market rules. The outcome of this analysis is consistent with a wide range of realistic scenarios. It does not necessarily apply to other jurisdictions in Australia. In fact, some of the modelling suggests that nuclear might well be viable elsewhere as the challenges facing baseload generation in South Australia are not shared with other regions of the NEM, which is a fascinating conclusion. I love that line because most people aren't aware that the Royal Commission found that in other parts of the NEM, some modelling suggests that nuclear power is already viable today which I think personally is a compelling case to say we should remove the prohibition right now. Because most people say there's a prohibition on it, but it's not economic, it's not urgent. Well, we've got a Royal Commission that said actually it could be viable in some parts of the country now. Uh, so I think that was quite a compelling finding that most people seem to gloss over. Uh, I did want to point that out so for the podcast. If there's nothing else you get from this podcast, that's not a bad one. I'm very glad you did. <laughs> So, uh, so that was on power generation, and um, and the other thing on the power generation is the the commission kind of restricted itself to looking at what's deployable now, and in the small modular reactor space, that's very much a developing space. Um, New scale is a a, a, a reactor a, a design that's probably the most well progressed in the US Absolutely. in terms of going through the approval process, the design approval process. But the Royal Commission said, well. We're not looking at that because it's not built now. It's not it's not licensed, etc. So they only looked at the large one plus gigawatt. Essentially, looked at those big one plus gigawatt type plants, and they found that in South Australia that would be really challenging to put that kind of plant in there. But I guess that's where they thought actually. But some of those plants might work elsewhere in the NIM. Um, but so I think from a, from the Royal Commission perspective, it's important to realise that they discounted the the idea of SMRs, and I think. Uh, from the perspective of normalising the technology and allowing that possibility to occur in the future, um, we should we should remember they didn't really look at that, but it could well be that within the next five or six years, we could start to see some small modular reactor opportunities really developing in the world, particularly in the US, that could have real application for us in Australia. And, and they didn't really have a good look at that. Fair enough, I don't blame them for that, but that's just the way they approached it. They were looking for deployability now. And the final one was waste waste opportunities, um, and that, I think everyone that got well reported that the, they the Royal Commission thought there was a great opportunity there. I think there still is a great opportunity there in Australia. There's a lot of people like Bob Hawke who think there's a great opportunity there. Um, and one of the things I don't for for people who are anti nuclear, they considered it a great win when a, when the citizens jury, the second citizens jury, came back and said 
we don't think we should look at this. But one of the things I always say is that opportunity doesn't just go away just because some people say it's it's not there. It'll, it, it, to the extent that opportunities exist, they'll always be considered until the opportunity disappears. Now, why would that opportunity disappear? Well, if someone else builds one, it might take that opportunity away from Australia. Um, if countries go ahead and develop all their own repositories, that might reduce the opportunity. But I, th I still think um, um, that potential is something that Australia could uh, could seriously consider, and it would be a, a great value add, not just for Australia, but even but for the world in in general. I mean, it would uh, allow it would mean that we could would be at the front end mining, and we'd be at the back end providing a solution there as well. Uh, Gareth Evans gave evidence at the Royal Commission saying if Australia could pull off this kind of arrangement, it would be an extreme, an extreme it would be extremely welcomed in the world and would uh, elevate our, our status in the world. Well, it's all we, I think we're well regarded in the world anyway, but it would be something that the world would receive really positively. So um, I think that's still something that might get, get looked at again in the future. Uh, maybe, and, and as I said before, there's all these different things in the waste, right? There's, there's burying um, the fuel rods or there's, fission products, there's reprocessing. So this isn't just a, a binomial sort of, um, it's either this or that. There's a lot of different possible sort of things that we can look at um, that uh, that might be looked at. And in fact, Australia itself has waste coming from Lucas Heights, a very, very small amount of waste coming from Lucas Heights in terms of the, fission, the reprocessed fission products that come back. We're going to have to do something with that. Um, so... That's our own waste from our own reactor that's producing radioisotopes for Australian consumption. Um, so at some point, we're going to look at this for ourselves anyway, if there's an effectively like an export. Because that's what, what, if we did something with waste, it would be like an export industry, right? Oh, yeah. The revenue would be coming from overseas. It would be foreign customers paying us for a service. Um, so it would be a, effectively a giant new export industry if we pulled off something like that. But... Um, yeah, so the Royal Commission was fascinating. I think there was a lot of the a lot of the attention went to the waste because that there was a sort of a bit a, a pre preliminary business case sort of put forward on what the potential could be. Uh, but I think there were some nuclear comments that were really interesting as well. And the recommendations in the end were very. There were only twelve recommendations, and most of them were around normalising the legislative architecture, repealing one forty a. You know, just allowing these technologies to be considered on their merits. If they're economic and safe, we could do them properly. They would go ahead. If not, nothing's going to happen. So, um, you know, the, the state government backed some of those recommendations and others it, it didn't. But um, I just I think it was a vital piece of work that I think will get uh, referred back to and revisited at some point. And it's not been the only one. I believe in 2006, there was the Umpner Report, which was a, a similar look into the... The Ziggy Report. That's the one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was done by the federal government. Um, and that was done around mainly around nuclear power, I think. And, uh, you know, that was... Uh, so that was, I think... Yeah, and that, that's a good example. That report continues to be referenced today. Um, and, uh, and I think this Royal Commission, this South Australian-based Royal Commission was... Now, they interviewed a lot of people and took some really good expert evidence. Um, and, and it's interesting when you look at the citizen that, that you know, the government then underwent a, a sort of a wide consultation process uh, statewide uh, and the, with two citizens juries, a, a smaller one initially with 50-odd people and then a, a second one with 300 or so. And the smaller one was reasonably positive about, yep, let's continue the conversation. We think these areas should be the main area of focus. And the second one 
uh, well, there's been a lot of comment on the second one. It didn't really, uh, didn't really, um, made it difficult for the conversation to continue immediately after that. Um, but um, uh, I, I, I think, uh, interestingly, that uh, in, in even in the second one, um, it wasn't around safety. It wasn't around a lot of the fear of radiation. It wasn't the, it wasn't, we shouldn't do this because we don't think we can, um, we don't think we can do it safely. It was, uh, some of it broke down around, you know, uh, probably a cynical view around the economics. You know, we don't think the government can do this kind of thing. The government's, uh, you know, government can't build a hospital on time and on budget. How's it going to do this kind of venture? So that's, that's, you know, that's quite a cynical sort of view that some people were able to be convinced of. And, um, but it's interesting that some of those old fears of, uh, um, you know, risk and, and radiation and whatnot actually weren't really identified as the reasons we shouldn't do this. Um, and I think on that basis that, that there were some positive things to take out of that process. Uh, and then when the time, when, when it gets revisited, I think uh, some of that might be more important. What can the nuclear industry offer younger listeners who find themselves drawn to the technology but maybe are not cut out to be scientists or engineers? Yeah, well, we can't all be sales marketing people, I guess. <laughs> Um, look, I think it's a good question. I was I, I was thinking about that, um, and I was kind of I was going to paraphrase JFK: "Ask not what nuclear technology for, can do for you, but what you can do for nuclear technology." I like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, look, I, it, look. For, in my case, I'm not a technical guy. I'm not a geologist or a metallurgist. So, uh, but I came, and I came to this relatively late. Um, but I was captured by uh, or captivated by some of the science around it. So I think even if you're not a science or a technical person, um, developing a passion around this would be around some of the science and technology aspects of it. For me, energy density was an extraordinary thing. And I had a long career, as I said, in, in mine, in you know, selling iron ore and coal. And I, I, I had a real, I felt a real firsthand understanding of what it takes to to build the modern world, what it ta- and, and and the benefits of the modern world in terms of what it brings the people of the world, in terms of health and education and opportunity, um, and and then when you come across the uranium and you see the energy density and what it can do, and then you see the nuclear med- medicine and the industrial applications, and you, you learn more and more from Lucas Heights and things like that. You, you know, it's easy to become very passionate in this space. So I think for young people, um, even if you're not a science person. Try and understand and, and, and appreciate the science and technology as much as you can uh, and become an advocate, speak up. You know, like today we're living through in an era where people have a voice, social media. Um, I think it's a technology that needs more and more people to speak up about it, uh, more and more people to speak about the benefits of it, you know. And, uh, and in Australia, in terms of nuclear technology, probably the main touch point for most people is health. So a lot of people know... Uh, friends or relatives that uh, are getting scans and uh, getting treatment, getting diagnoses. Find out more about that. Find out more if it's coming from Lucas Heights. I know some people who um, have become who are pro, who are anti-nuclear and have become pro-nuclear. And I've asked them why. What changed your mind after twenty years of of being skeptical about this? Says, well, my wife got cancer, and I, I've started to look at some of the treatment she was getting, and it made me readdress some of the the phobias and some of the prejudices that I had against this technology and this area of science. Um, so I think for a lot of people, it, it's uh, it, it's that's that's an area that's a way that they can become um, more 
neutral around the space rather than, as we said earlier, that sort of culturally, we're all kind of culturally a bit... You know, there's a cultural cringe. There's a cultural like, doubt ooh. around it. Yeah, yeah and... Uh, and for a lot of people, you say, well, I don't really know much about it, but I'm supposed to be against it, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, that's almost... <laughs> and then you sort of have to talk through where you're at on it. So, um, But that's right. I, I, that, that would be my advice, I think. And I think on that basis, I think there's going to be great uh, employment opportunities. There'll be science and research and, and marketing and sales and advocacy opportunities, I think, in this space. Uh, not just in energy, but in in technology and applications, industrial applications, the nuclear medicine side of things. I think it's a rich field. Um, it's not the only, obviously, not the only scientific field that's uh, that's going to be uh, more and more important in the world in the years ahead. But I think, given the benefits that we get from such a small amount of raw material, um, you know, it's it's going to be uh, it's it's going to be so important in the years in the years to come. Why? Because there's more people coming onto the planet. Um, we, you know, more and more, we as humans want to look after our environment. We want to give, we want to make sure that there's there's space for nature. And uh, uh, you know, we become as 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 time goes on, we're becoming more and more aware of environmental outcomes and protecting species and and all these sort of uh, wants and desires. Um, I think nuclear is really important. It's 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 low impact. Um, its potential is is huge in that space. So. Uh, yeah, get on board, study, read as much as you can, and uh, and and talk to people as much as you can. That's my advice. Nice. So what you're doing is really good, Logan. I have to say it's a great innovation, and uh, you know it's really appreciated from people like myself and Ben and others. I think who've been in this space for a while. It's uh, we, I wish you all the best, and uh, I'll be looking forward to seeing all these podcasts coming up. Thank you very much. Look, before we go, I'm going to hit you with uh, with one more question. Uh, one you haven't. Yeah. One which I haven't actually oh, addressed okay, yet, I'm sorry, right, but right. Uh, it shouldn't be too bad because I think you've already half answered it already. Mm-hmm. Could you give me two to three people that you reckon I should invite <laughs> to the podcast? Well, um, yeah, I think I, I, there's people that I haven't met. Uh, Rod Adams, I think, in the US is someone I follow online, I think, and I've seen some of the things he's talked about. He would be really interesting. I don't Atomic know, Rod. Atomic Rod. You, um, I'd love to meet him one day. Uh, Jessica Lovering from the Breakthrough Institute. Mm, um, yes. Um, uh, she could be in Australia like uh, next year sometime, so that might be something you might be able to tee up. I really uh, um, recommend that. Robert Bryce is someone that the Minerals Council that I've met, uh, and he talks. I think he he's written some books. He's at the Manhattan Institute. He, he he's written a lot in uh, in, in uh, various US uh, papers. Um, an energy expert, and he's really good around the 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 sort of the um, future. Uh, role of dense energy sources and what it takes to feed and and power a, a modern world with seven eight nine billion people on i think it's fantastic so yeah it could give you plenty more but um there's a lot of people to talk to um jeff curry is fantastic i don't know if you've met jeff, jeff i haven't or, met uh, jeff uh but ben did suggest you need to speak to this person yeah, i'm not uh, giving I'm you chase any, him up i'm gonna chase him up um yeah it, 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 have, I, have i given you anyone in the you haven't got yet, or uh, just Dr. Jeff Curry? Just oh. Jeff Curry? Just Dr. Jeff Curry. That's the only double. Yeah, Jeff's on so nuclear medicine. He's uh, fantastic on that. So, uh, A.D. Patterson at Lucas Heights would be great. Um, yeah, no, there's plenty of people, and I'm sure more and more will come out over the next few months. Yeah, definitely. Well, Daniel's uh, Daniel Zavatiero. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to have you on Going Fishing. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks, Logan. Great, mate. Good on you. Cheers.
Going Fishing would like to thank Daniel Zavatiero one last time for appearing on the podcast. The Minerals Council of Australia website can be found at www.minerals.org.au. Thank you for listening. At Fish and Going is the podcast's Twitter handle. Australia is a young nation located on the far side of the world. Our history demonstrates we can stand up to injustice, admit when we are wrong, and muster the courage to act in spite of our fears. By no means are we perfect, but we often punch above our weight on the world stage. Today, our greatest challenge is not posed by international tensions, but from how humanity chooses to progress. We have everything we need to lead the world in making the right choice, and we only need to embrace the courage to do it. This has been Going Fishing, hosted by Logan Smith.